Well, church, uh, my name is Greg Meek, pastor to Families and Next Gen. I'm excited to be with you today as we begin this new three-week series on angels and demons and the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you may, when you saw that we were going to do this series on the supernatural realm, might have asked yourself, why do we go here? Why, why bother with this topic? And I would say that in our world today, the interest in angels, more particularly the supernatural realm, is, is high. And it's symptomatic of our culture's insatiable appetite for the supernatural. Now, there's a dangerous trend in the Christian community where many diminish or even ignore or try to remove the spiritual world from our attention and our awareness. And when we do think about the spiritual world, we may be more impacted or influenced by the media and popular culture than the Word of God. It seems that every other movie or television show features some paranormal theme, alien superheroes, or some mischievous, malevolent, I can't even say that word, malevolent, okay, whatever, deity. (laughs) I said it the first service. Y'all know what I mean. Bookstore shelves are stocked with books about aliens, creatures, and of course, angels and demons. And you know what? That wouldn't be the case if people weren't so hungry for something in the spiritual. But unfortunately, what they're hungry for isn't very biblical. Hollywood gets it totally wrong. And I would argue that it plays such a major role in the confusion, confusion of Christians and the public in general on this topic. Our understanding of angels in the supernatural realm for us, even in the church, is a hodgepodge of Christian tradition, stories, speculations, and even myths. But the Bible is clear on one thing, that the supernatural world is real And it is powerful. And through this series, we're going to take a look at what the Bible teaches us about the spiritual world and and listen to this, and the personal beings, I said it, personal beings that are daily at work for us and against us in the form of angels, demons, and the Holy Spirit. Now, what we hope to accomplish with this series is to truly see the supernatural world rooted in a biblical perspective and examining biblical terminology for members of God that we call the heavenly host, where we get a wider context of what's in scripture from a Near Eastern ancient context. And what I mean by that? Let me, as we talk through this, let me be very clear on something. We do not read scripture in our modern world the same way the original readers read it and they listened and they heard it. Our worldview is totally different from theirs. We sadly approach scripture through a 21st century Western culture mindset. Yet scripture was written and given to an Eastern ancient culture, the people who were no totally spiritual. This was nothing to them. They understood this. 
And I actually think, I said in the first service, that I think the ancient Hebrews and even the early church would be shocked to learn that we're even having to do a sermon series on this with the purpose of trying to come to some understanding of the angelic and the spiritual realm because it's all throughout Scripture. This was everyday life to them. But to our current scientific worldview of having to prove the existence of everything, even spiritual, we struggle with this understanding. And as we begin to explore these topics, let me also say this. There, this is no way we can do an exhaustive study on these topics in a 30-minute message. There's just absolutely not. We could take an eight-week class for angels, demons, and Holy Spirit and do an eight-week equip on each one of them. And so what today, my hope is today and over the next three weeks, what this is going to do for you is stir a desire in you to dig deeper, to dig deeper into these topics, but we hope it gives you a different biblical understanding of angels, demons, and the Holy Spirit. So let's begin by looking at some terminology when it comes to the spiritual realm. And we'll start, of course, in the Old Testament. And here are some terms that we want to talk through. First of all, we want to talk about terms in the Old Testament that describe nature, the nature of these beings. What are the members of the heavenly host like? Now, the Old Testament makes it clear that the members of God's heavenly host are spiritual beings, entities by nature. They are not embodied, at least in the sense of our human experience that we're in physical form. So the first term is this. You should be familiar with it, spirit. Now, I want you to know that I've put some references out here for these terms, uh, some spirit, scriptural references. This is no way exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just trying to give you something to go back and reference. But in this, we understand this Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. And it's where in this scripture here, God actually sends this spirit, it's called a lying spirit, to go against Ahab. He uses even the fallen ones in this, in this realm. And some of that's shocking to some people. But I put that for that purpose on there. Spirits. The next are called, we hear them called heavenly ones. Psalm 89, 5 through 7. Do you know that the heavens in Hebrew is shamaim? And that literally means the sky, the, uh, the um, space, and then the heavenly realm of God. It's, it's the three tiers of heaven. But even sometimes in Old Testament, this Shamaim is assigned to the heavenly host. Listen to this. It says here in Psalm 89, 5 through 7, it says, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. So the context of this is it is a spiritual element here. This one fascinates me and it always has. Do you know that also uh, angelic beings or spiritual beings are referred to as stars? Stars, literally. In Job specifically, 38, 5 through 7, listen to this. God asked Job, who determined the earth's measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what on what were its bases sunk, or on who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars together 
And all the sons of God shouted for joy. So we, th- we read a lot of, the, of Job, we read a lot of Psalms, we think there's a lot of poetry in this, and it is to an extent, but in ancient Hebrew, in Hebrew language, every word has a particular meaning, and this meaning for stars here is not the star you see in the sky, but it is the heavenly beings. They're also called the holy ones, the holy ones. Now, we got to make sure we understand this, this Holy ones does not denote some quality of perfection because God does indeed charge his angels in certain positions with error. They are, they are not perfect. They're infallible. In fact, they have free will. They can fall like we do. But here's where we have to understand this. The nature when you see holy ones is, means that they are in proximity and association within the presence of God. Okay? Then we see divine beings slash little gods, this little gods here. And the Old Testament refers, uses this little gods all the time. That's what it translates in English. But do you know what it, it is in Hebrew? It is Elohim. And what's interesting here, which may shock you, is we hear that God is Elohim. And then he tells us that these little angelic beings, these little gods are Elohim as well, which tells us that Elohim is not the name of God. It is a description of a heavenly being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are Elohim. They're the Elohim. They're the Most High. But also, all of these other angelic beings, if they are spiritual, they're Elohim as well. And that's where we get the little g-gods from in Scripture. That surprises some people. Psalm 82 and 89 refer to that. But here's the deal. We have to look at not only terms, but we have to look at terms that describe status and hierarchy. Because there's a status and a hierarchy in the angelic realm. Psalm 82, 89 uh, refer to, number one, as an assembly. It's referred to as an assembly. And I'm not going to go through all the Hebrew pronunciation of that. Just take my word for it. But this term for assembly appears nearly 150 times in Old Testament. It refers to a variety of assemblies, throngs, and communities. We get also the word council. This word is, occurs 21 times. But biblical writers employed it more for references to a council Of the holy ones, we're going to see this language is called the divine council. There's a council God has of his heavenly beings. We also get the word here, congregation. It utilizes, Psalm 89.5 utilizes, says the sons of God meets in the skies of this assembly. It describes a variety of groups, a mass of groups of people, and even has a military uh, connotation like a military company to that word as well, which is interesting to me. We get assembled meeting out of this. This is Moed. It refers to a meeting place. The notion that, that the little gods meet at a cosmic mountain 
comes from Scripture, but do you know that permeates throughout all of the Near Eastern religions? They all have this concept of they go to the mountain to meet their little God. In Isaiah 14, 12, it says the Mount of Assembly is the place where, listen to this, the stars of God meet with the Lord. This is the place where they meet. And then number five is court, court. Believe it or not, a lot of, not a lot, but much of certain aspects of the Hebrew scripture are really in Aramaic. And so this is an Aramaic word that you get in Daniel. And it says here in, um, in Daniel 7, 9 through 10, it says, The heavenly scene where thousands, thousands, and ten thousands times ten thousands stood before the Lord, the seated ancient of days, the thrones, and put in place the court. So we get that concept, and they sit in judgment. That's where we get, we get our legal system comes from this idea right here. So that's hierarchy and status, but now let's look at terms that describe function. What did the members of the heavenly host do? This is the most common that everyone's familiar with, is the first one is angel. In Hebrew, that term is malak. In Greek, it is angelos. It means the same thing. It is literally a spiritual being that God uses as a messenger to deliver or receive a messenger. Gabriel, as we know, one of the most popular, goes and delivers these messages. Okay? We have also ministers, angels that are ministers. Psalms 103, 20, 21, it specifically refers to angels as ministers. Listen to this. Bless the Lord, all his host, his ministers who do his will. Okay? Psalm 104 even makes, uh, says this with angels as ministers, as flaming fire. And I love number three. This one I've done a lot, a lot of research on. They're called watchers in Daniel. They're called watchers. And this is another Aramaic term, ear. And it says, he says in Daniel, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, behold, a watcher. A holy one came down from heaven. Verse 13, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. And in verse 17, because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven. Watchers are angels that are assigned to certain uh, nations and geographical regions to watch over human beings. And then we're, we get... Number four, host. Psalm 68, 12. That serving in God's heavenly army. It's a common noun that refers to a multitude of people. Uh, conscripted military service. And then we get that of a mediator. In Job 33, says... If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him, and says, deliver him from going down into the pit, I have found a ransom. The angelic realm, some of them mediate for us human beings. And here's a combination, cherubim, seraphim, that I think we get so mixed up, and that has been just 
destroyed by culture because these two words are interchangeable, actually, even though they look different in, in appearance, but they have function of guardianship of the presence of God. You know, we have, if you think about it, in some of our uh, uh, enlightenment period in the, the art and work and on ceilings, we see these little cute little cherub angels that we think is like Cupid. That's nothing how scripture describes them. Because both of these are said to have wings. And by the way, cherubim and seraphim are the only angels in all of scripture that are said to have wings. That's it. But it says here that cherubim are assigned four faces, both human and bovine body parts. It's kind of a terrifying thought to me. But then even the seraphim to me is worse because seraph, the Hebrew word translated out of that literally means snake. These descriptions are reflected in iconography from the biblical period and neither of these are assigned the term angel or malach. They're not even considered angels. They're their own separate heavenly host beings. Now what about the New Testament? Let's look at New Testament. They have a function in, of service in heaven and on earth. One of them is they function in ministry on behalf of believers. Hebrews 1.14 tells us that. You see, descriptions of angelic activity on earth are more numerous in the New Testament than they are in the Old Three quarters of the approximately 180 references to angels are in the New Testament. It, this shouldn't be surprising, as it's God's will that his heavenly angels serve the human family. They're not to be, though, objects of adoration or worship. Angels are not to be worshipped or adored. The New Testament says they're ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Other, other aspects in the New Testament, they're, they're portrayed as uh, they delivered the apostles from prison. One comforted Paul when his life was threatened. Angels brought messages to people in dreams. We get the story of Joseph and uh, going to Egypt. Their visions. We have Mary, the mother of Jesus, getting visited from Gabriel. We have uh, the angels at the tomb. They appeared to the shepherds to announce the birth of Jesus. We also know that angels encounter human beings physically. An angel struck Peter on the side to awaken him in prison and supernaturally free him from his shackles. And scripture tells us even today, we never know when we've even entertained them. Another function service in heaven on earth is that they are going to have judgment of unbelievers. Now most of this type uh, judgment occurs in what we would call a apocalyptic uh, literature or scripture that in the end of the days, mostly concerned with the day of the Lord or Christ's second coming. But Jesus gave an example of this when he tells the parable of the weeds in the wheat field in Matthew 13. And then we know that they have service in heaven 
and Revelation, that's number three, service in heaven, Revelation 5, 11, and 12, angels appear in a great multitude. This, this, this says, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. As we've talked about this nature of angels, the status of angels, and the function of angels, we have to talk about one other aspect, and that is rebellion. Because here's what we understand. Angels were created like us human beings with free will, and they have an ability to rebel, and Scripture shows us that they did rebel. And the most famous rebellion of all, as we know, is, is Satan in the garden. But I don't know if you got the Sunday school version I did because I was so confused about this growing up because I was told that before the earth was ever formed, Satan, there was war in heaven, Satan got a third of the angels to rebel and they were thrown out of heaven. Well, where were they thrown? The earth hadn't been created yet. And when, when I got into Scripture, we find that this story doesn't even occur until Revelation chapter 12. So theologians have mixed feelings on that. Some say that this war actually occurred when Jesus was born, because it's kind of right after the birth, telling, retelling of the birth of Christ. But some theologians believe that it's going to happen in the future, because uh, it says that as soon as Satan and the angels were thrown out of heaven, they were thrown to earth permanently, and woe to the people on earth for what is coming. So that's two schools of thought on that. But we know that Satan was created for a particular purpose and function before he fell. So let's look at Ezekiel 28. I find this fascinating. This is talking about Satan. You were in Eden. He was in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, Topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were, uh, look at this, an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. It gives us the imagery that, that Eden wasn't a flat plain. It was a, it was a mountain. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Now that picture that we get painted in Ezekiel is a pretty, sounds like a beautiful angel. And we, what does modern culture do with him? Of course, we don't know what he looks like now after the fall. We like to imagine it but what we don't understand is that we ascribe everything that happens in our life as Christians as Satan caused this. And here's the issue with that. Angels are created beings. They are not God. They're not the most high. They do not, they're not omnipotent like God. They're not all powerful. They're powerful, but they're not all powerful. They're not omniscient. They're not all knowing. 
They're not omnipresent. They cannot be everywhere at once. So when we all in the Christian world have a bad day and say, Satan caused this, I just shudder because I'm like, no, he probably didn't. I don't think he worries about us as much as some of the higher up things. But we know this. We know he has an army with him that are, that are working against us. But here's another thing. That's one rebellion. Scripture gives us several other angelic rebellions in the Old Testament, and most of us don't understand it. Once, once Satan fell and God tells him that he's going to put enmity, hatred between the woman and her seed and your seed, and you're sitting there saying, there's nobody's been born yet, because seed denotes birth. And, and so what we learn from this is that Satan, God is giving Satan a clue that his end is going to come through a human being, through the seed of the woman. We know that's Jesus eventually. Satan didn't know that at that time because he's not all-knowing. So what was his plan? Best plan then is to less mess with human beings because if I can stop the humans, the human bloodline, then I'm not, my end is not going to come. So we go straight from there, we get into Genesis 6, and I want to read about this rebellion. Genesis 6, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Now let's stop right here. This sons of God in Hebrew is B'nai Elohim. Elohim is spiritual, folks. It's not, these are not sons of men. These are not human beings. These are angelic beings. No matter how you slice it and dice it. A lot of, of theologians want to ascribe this to a human, but you can't do it because the Hebrew does not match up to that. Sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any as they chose. That word, that take in that Hebrew is not nice, okay? It's not go ask for your hand in marriage. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. This is a clue that the flood is coming. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Nephilim were what we, get, we know as giants. And also after when the sons of God, these spiritual beings, came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. This is the story of messing with the human blood lineage. This is where the giants and all the clans of the giants that we get all throughout the Old Testament come. And then what we see when we get past Genesis 6, we get to Genesis 10, and uh, from Noah and his three sons, we see there's 70 nations. You know, the earth is repopulated again. There's 70 nations. And we get this story right after that in Genesis 11 of another rebellion of Babel. Just to remind you at the Tower of Babel, they said, come let us build a city and a tower with its tops to the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. That's not sound like they're going to worship God, does it? Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. 
And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, they all have one language, and this verse just has driven me crazy over the years. This is the only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them. This, this is a clue here to us. These are not just human beings in action here. There is some angelic force behind this that's manipulating this so that these humans will try to be like God and rebel as well. And so what, how, do we, how do we know what's going on? There's other scripture verses that we call proof texts that we can go to to get context here. God scatters them, we know. He scatters the people all over the face of the earth. We have these 70 nations, and we're going to look at Deuteronomy 32. This is Moses talking. Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, he will show you. Your elders, they will tell you. When the Most High... Yahweh gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind. When did he divide mankind? At Babel. He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now, depending on your English translation, it may say sons of Israel, and that's an inaccurate English translation because in Hebrew, this is B'nai Elohim. He divided, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the B'nai Elohim, these spiritual beings. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted inheritance. Now, what did God do here? At Babel, he scattered them and he appointed a watcher over, maybe one, two, I don't know how many, but watchers were appointed over those 70 nations to watch out for human beings. God says, I am done with your rebellion. I'm done with you. I'm, you. You go watch them, guard them. I'm going to handle Jacob. Who's Jacob? Israel. Israel is my people. This is called the disinheriting of the nations. God says, you handle it. I've got my people because he had a plan of bringing the Messiah through there. But something happened because those watchers didn't do what they were supposed to do. There's another rebellion. Let's look at Psalm 82 for clues. Here we go. God has taken his place in the divine council. It's the council in heaven. In the midst of the little gods, the little Elohim, he's holding judgment. Something's happened. He asked this question. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? That's what he's asking these watchers. The Most High, you, uh, he says here, go back one. Go back on there. Partiality to the wicked. The word salah means just to pause. He says, this is what they were supposed to be doing. Give justice to the weak. And the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak, the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Doesn't that sound like what Jesus came to do for us? Now, next, next part. They have neither knowledge nor understanding, and they walk about in darkness. Who is that? It's us, fallen human beings. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. God is saying, I put you to watch over them to rescue them, to help them, because they're ignorant, fallen human beings. That's really what he's saying. And you didn't do it, now I'm going to judge you. 
And he says, God says, I said, you are little Elohim, little God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. You have an ending. You have an ending. We find in Revelation that ending is lake of fire. And then I love this verse. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. And what is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Jesus will come to the earth, and Jesus' purpose of coming to the earth is to gain back the territory that God gave away in the first place. And guess what? He does that. How does he do that? He uses us as Christians. In the New Testament, the Greeks said they went out, some verses say 72. Uh, he sent out 72 to witness, but it, literally it means 72 by 2. And what he's doing, he's sending us out to gain title deed back for him for the earth. How do we do that? We have the Holy Spirit in us when we become Christ. So you see this pattern here. That, that the New Testament will fulfill. See, like humans, angelic beings, this passage shows they can have an ending, and not all of their ending is going to be good. It's not going to be good. God can destroy, destroy them because they were created beings just like we are. And like humans, some of them sinned, rebelled, and they're going to be dealt with in the end. And their rebelliousness is going to be lake of fire just like anybody else that's a non-Christian. So here's our question. Why should we care and study about angels in the spiritual realm? Mostly because it helps us understand context and understand familiar points of biblical theology. But here's the deal. God's supernatural family, the angelic family, is a template for the understanding of God's relationship to his human family of believers. And our, we're greater than they are. We're going to one day in our glorified bodies, we, we have status over the angelic realm. Learning what the Bible says about the angelic realm ultimately is tied to thinking about how God thinks about us. What God wants us to know about angels contributes to our own eternal perspective. We were both, both of us created to be imagers. We image God. We are his representatives acting on his behalf. Humans represent God and image him on earth. The heavenly host images and represents God in the spiritual world. God wanted both of us to be included in his home, and it was that way when heaven and earth were together in Eden in the beginning. But yet, because of Satan and the fall, it disrupted our home life that God intended for us. But nevertheless, God understood this. He anticipated the fall. In his foresight, God had already determined that he would come to earth in Jesus Christ so that humankind could come home after all. Acknowledging our supernatural siblings were part of God's original desire to have human children so much, think for this, that he would act at their expense for our own benefit. That's amazing. 
If God wants us with him and in this, that type of home to that agree, why would we ever fear departure from this earth? This understanding of the supernatural realm gives us an eternal perspective. And nothing can take that away from us. Not angelic beings. Next week, Jonathan's going to talk about the mnemonic realm, which we can really get scary and crazy about. But once we understand that we have Christ in us, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, we are eternally secure, and nothing in that fallen realm can, can, can hurt us. Now, can they affect the world around us? Yes. They can affect circumstances. But Paul put it the best when he says he is convinced that nothing could ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, angels nor demons. He, he puts that in there. Neither our fears for today or our worries for tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. So let's live with this confidence of supernatural understanding as we're going through the next two weeks. Let's dig deeper. Let's gain an eternal perspective. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your purposes and plans are perfect. And even in the fallenness of humans, even in the fallenness of the angelic realm, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And we rest in that. Thank you for loving us, providing a way that we can be redeemed, even though we know the angelic world cannot. So thank you for the grace that you pour out to us, that you loved us that much. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross and making a way for our return home. So we love you. We praise your holy name. We pray these things in your name, Jesus, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.